I'm going to go back to what I read out to you yesterday of this sutta because there are a few points which need a little more elaboration which would help to get a more relationship to what is being taught here. The first thing was that it starts out with thus have I heard. Now I told you already that this is Ananda speaking at the recitation of the Buddha's discourses at the time of the first great council of Arahants. Now I just want to tell you the story how it came about that Ananda was reciting this. And in this particular collection, which is the Digga Nikaya, Nikaya means collection, Digga means long, it's a collection of long discourses, of which this is number 15. Practically all of them start out like that, thus have I heard. Ananda, as I've already told you, was the Buddha's attendant for 25 years, totally devoted to the Buddha, and at his beck and call. He slept on the veranda of the Buddha's kuti and took care of his robes, of his food, and his visitors so that they wouldn't overrun the Buddha and was always available. Because of that, he didn't practice as much as he could have otherwise, and at the time of the Buddha's Parinibbana, he was a stream enterer. Parinibbana means Nibbana without remainder, which means the death of a fully enlightened one. When a fully enlightened one attains Nibbana, that is just plain Nibbana at the time when the body is still existing, which the Buddha did at age 35, and when the body breaks up, it is Nibbana without a remainder. No body remains. So that is the word that is used instead of saying at the Buddha's death, but it's perfectly right to say at the Buddha's death also. So he was a stream enterer. A stream enterer means a person who has seen Nibbana once for him or herself. And having seen it once, a great difference in the person's inner situation arises, but it's a far cry from full enlightenment. In fact, a stream enterer only addresses three of ten fetters, and those three are that the wrong view of oneself is given up, that one no longer believes in rites and rituals, and that skeptical doubt is forever eliminated. But this wrong view of self which is given up does not mean at stream entry that one actually feels as if there was nobody sitting inside. Now you all know, I'm quite sure, that you feel there's somebody sitting inside of you. And that's called me. And that looks out of the eyes, hears out through the ears, talks through the mouth, and so on. <coughs> feels and so on, and that's all me. Now, a stream enterer does not change that, unfortunately, but he knows better, he or she knows better. And by being able to refer back to the experience of stream entry, that feeling of me is sitting inside of me can be momentarily eliminated. But ordinarily, it's still there. So it's a far cry from full enlightenment 
rites and rituals are no longer believed in, which is not a great problem as far as we're concerned with religious rites and rituals, but we have lots of others. We have lots of other rites and rituals, how we relate to certain people, how we relate to men if we're women, how we relate to women if we're men, how we relate to older people, younger people, how we think we should um, conduct ourselves. We have all sorts of ideas which make up me. Now, the three mantra does not believe that this is really a make-up of me, but he still carries on with it. The only thing that's totally gone is skeptical doubt. A stream mentor knows from personal experience that there is such a thing as Nibbana, and that's the only thing that is total bliss. Everything else is a, just a small or faint resemblance. So that skeptical doubt of what to practice, what's the priority in life, and whether the Buddha really said the way it was, that's gone. So Ananda was only a stream enter. Now the word only is said with tongue-in-cheek because that is the goal of every meditator. Stream entry is the first step when one becomes an Aryan, a noble one. Up to then one is a puttajana, a worldling. And the world constantly calls with all its affairs. And the world calls and calls and one answers. I'm here, I'm coming, look at me. Now, up to then, the Puttajana has also, the worldling, has also the danger of being reborn in lower states of consciousness, which is mentioned later. Um, reborn not only after death, but in one's daily affairs, when the mind goes downhill into depression. So there's always that danger there. Now, with the uh, passing the threshold into the noble one, becoming a stream enter, all the danger of lower birth is eliminated once and for all, and one has become a noble one. So it is the watershed. It is that which differentiates the one who is trying from the one who has had some success with that. But it still is a long way from shedding ten fetters. There are ten fetters which bind us, and those first three are just called the lower fetters. Later we have to shed the higher fetters. Now, Ananda was only a stream enterer. And the word only also fits there because most of the fellow monks who had been with the Buddha for some time were fully enlightened. Now, at the death, at his deathbed, under the leadership of the Venerable Kasapa, the monks decided that three months hence they would have the first great council of Arahants. And at that time, they would recite the discourses, the sutta, and the vinaya, the rules for monks and nuns. And the reason for <coughs> that was so that it would be kept in purity, that not too many diversions would happen. So this was decided, but since it was going to be a great council of arahants, only arahants were invited. Now, they needed 
Ananda to be part of this. Because first of all, he had heard all the discourses in the last 25 years and he had an excellent memory. So his fellow monks went to see him and said, Look, Ananda, you've got three months. <laughs> Do something about yourself. And Ananda promised. He said, Sure, I'll try my level best. <coughs> so he meditated and meditated and uh, let the discourses of the Buddha go through his mind. And it came to the last day of the three months and it was the evening before the council was to take place and he was going in walking meditation back and forth and it was getting dark and darker and he was getting more and more tired and he could tell nothing was happening. So he finally decided he just couldn't do it. So he went to his kuti and he sat down on his bed and the story says that he was in this position, just lying down when he became enlightened. So the next morning he went to where the great council was taking place where a seat had been reserved for him just in case and of course the other enlightened ones realized that he had become enlightened and invited him to start reciting the suttas. And so he recites with, Thus have I heard, and he gives the name of the place where he has heard it. The story itself tells us two things. First of all, never to meditate with expectation. He had three months and he was going to make it. That doesn't work. I've got six days and I'm going to make it. That doesn't work. Or three weeks or whatever. Or tonight. Expectation is detrimental, it's counterproductive. Because when the expectation is in the mind, the concentration cannot be in the mind. One can't have both at the same time. So that's one thing that it tells us. And the other thing that it tells us also is that when the apple is ripe, it will fall from the tree. As Ananda had already practiced for so many years, he had practiced for exactly, since the Buddha was 35, since his enlightenment, he had been practicing with the Buddha. So he had been practicing for 45 years. And his mind was ripe to see the reality of the non-self. And at that time, then it arises. So it is not a worthwhile endeavor to say, I must become enlightened, so now that's what I'm doing. It is the only worthwhile endeavor is to concentrate, that's all. So this is what happened to Ananda. So he then recites. And not only that, he is very famous in the Pali Canon because he was a great help to the nuns. In fact, it was due to him that the nuns' sangha, the nun order of nuns, was established. So, of course, he has a special place in the hearts of all nuns. And... Not only that, but he is also, there's a great deal of compassion for him because after the Buddha's death, the other monks berated him for having done that. But it was done. So this is what have I heard. Then the other thing that needs to have a, a look at is when the Buddha says that this generation has become like a tangled skein, like a knotted ball of thread, 
like matted rushes and reeds. At another place in the suttas, Buddha says, that is a generation delighting in attachments. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Or does it? And when a generation delights in attachments, it's very difficult to see the opposite. Because attachments generate views. Obviously, if I'm attached to a person and have to have that person around, then I have to justify that with the view that this must be the right thing to do. Or if I'm attached to my sense pleasures, eating or music or whatever it may be, then of course I justify that with the view that's what I need, that's what I have to have, that's the way life has to be lived. How else could I go on doing it without that justification? But not only that, these are the sense pleasures that make it very difficult, the attachments, to see a totally different perspective. It's also this attachment to this person, which is very often brought out when we see how attached we are to the body. Now, I've talked about that already in the past week, this identification with our body. And I told you to use a countermeasure by imagining there's a zipper in front, opening the zipper, taking all the bits and pieces out, laying them nicely in front of you, and then asking yourself, where am I? This is one of the antidotes for that. But not only are we attached to the body, and anyone who has practiced for a little while will say, well, yes, I know I'm not the body, so there's something else we're attached to. And this attachment to the me generates two wrong views which are so insidiously dangerous that we sometimes don't even know that we have them. And they are widespread. And one we can call eternalism. And the other one, annihilationism. Now, eternalism shows itself by the thought, everything is going to be nice after death. I'll get a nice seat in paradise, or I'll have a... Certainly there's something reserved for me where I can play the harp, or whatever we're believing in. That's eternalism. That's me. That's the soul that's going to continue. Now, whatever that soul is, nobody's ever figured out yet. But seeing we're not the body, and most people agree to that without great difficulty, and then hearing about the fact that maybe we're not even the mind, well, obviously we must be the soul. There must be somebody there that's going to have it nice eventually. <laughs> so that's eternalism. And the other thing is the annihilationism. We only live once. At death everything is finished, so I might as well indulge myself. I might as well have it nice. Now, not later, not with that harp up there, but right now. And both of these are insidiously intertwined and give people the basis for using the senses 
and using their viewpoints as a foundation for their life. If we use our own viewpoints for a foundation for our life, we can be quite sure it's not going to work. It will work up to a certain point, as long as the body is still young enough not to have too many pains, as long as we don't have too many people that are opposed to us, as long as there's enough money around, as long there isn't any war, as long as things are going fairly smoothly. But let anything happen, and then it doesn't work. Because our own views are all wrong. And would I give a discourse? which is the first one in this long collection. It's called the Brahmajala Sutta, the uh, discourse on the net of views, and he, in it he enumerates 62 views, which are sort of like headings for all the views that one possibly have, and each one of them, he says, is wrong. Why? Because each one of them is based on the idea that this is me. So it can't be right. It is discolored by relative truths. It does not approach absolute truths. So this is one of the difficulties that this generation with attachments finds, that the wrong views are not known to be wrong views. Actually, it seems quite okay and justifiable. Everybody's doing it. So we have that difficulty. And then there's the sentence where the Buddha said, because of not understanding and not penetrating this Dhamma. Now, the word this Dhamma particularly refers to depend arising. And here he points again to the fact that dependent arising is that what needs to be understood and penetrated. And so it makes it again, makes again the uh, point of importance. Now, to penetrate it means that there is a certain urgency about that. Because as long as we don't penetrate and understand what this depend arising is all about, we're constantly beset by wrong view. It's not possible not to do it. Because there is on the one side, there is the worldly endeavor, and on the other side, the spiritual. And the two can never meet, even though we try. They don't meet. The worldly endeavor makes it important to have things pleasant, loving, compassionate, um, caring, where we don't have too many negativities. But the spiritual endeavor on the absolute level shows us only one thing. There's nobody there doing it. How do we, care, how do we get to that point of feeling that, that they are only phenomena? So what we are faced with is that a non-understanding of things as they really are. And it is said to be, we can divide that into three parts, the understanding of things the way they really are. The first thing that we can understand about our own reactions, our own thoughts about our own feelings, 
we can see how they come about, their causes. First we see it happening, and then we see the cause. Why is that happening within me? Why do I dislike this? Why I, do I want that? Why am I upset about this? Why don't I understand that? What's the reason for it? What's the cause? Now, this is a very important questioning, which is often done by people who have a particular problem. But we don't have to wait for particular problems. We all have the same problem. That's dukkha. And that's enough of a problem. Whether it's a big dukkha or a medium dukkha or a small dukkha, it doesn't really matter. We've all got the same problem. So we can inquire into ourselves what is the cause for whatever is arising within me. Now that will help us enormously because we can see then that it's all happening within and it's got nothing to do with out there. And it's all based, unfortunately, on greed and hate, which means liking and disliking, which sounds much better, doesn't it? And wanting and not wanting, which also sounds much more justifiable. But in the Buddha's terminology, he calls it greed and hate, because it can deteriorate into that, obviously. It can deteriorate into greed and it can deteriorate into hate. It doesn't always do that, luckily. It, most of the time it stays on the level of like and dislike. But that is what we can inquire into. Why? What's the cause? In order to understand the Buddha's teaching, we have to then look at whatever there is within us or outside of us in the light of the three characteristics. Now, one of them is so difficult that I would at this point uh, suggest to use the other two. And what I'm saying here are all practice matters. These are things to do. They are not just things to hear, they are things to do. The whole day there's plenty of time, and three weeks there's plenty of time. Any of that can be done. You know, it just takes one moment to find the cause why one is unhappy. It takes only one moment to drop the wish that things were otherwise, and the unhappiness goes. But having done it, one has to know it, the understood experience. So to see things in the light of the three characteristics, which means looking at everything that arises in the light of impermanence and in the light of unsatisfactoriness. Now that is very important, particularly when something very pleasant arises. Why is that unsatisfactory? Well, because it stops again. That's why it's unsatisfactory. It doesn't stick around. And as it doesn't stick around, and as our attachment is there for it, whatever it may be, it may be a, um, a pleasant meditative experience, it may be a sense contact, it may be nice food, nice sound, nice uh, views, whatever it may be, if we are attached, we want it back. 
And whatever wanting arises in the mind creates dukkha. Now this sentence is so important. I'll say it again. Whatever wanting arises in the mind creates dukkha. And I would like to suggest to you, if you want to understand the Buddha's teaching and benefit by it, to try that out. If you don't, you don't. It doesn't really matter. But if you really want to understand what the Buddha taught, that one is essential. If there's any wanting, there is dukkha. If I drop the wanting, I drop the dukkha. And that particular thing is also so subtle and so insidious that most people don't even know that they have it. One of the most subtle ones is, I want to be liked. That's a dreadful one. People suffer from it year after year. I want to be liked. So I turn myself inside out trying to do what I think another person will like. And that works? It never does. Drop, I want to be liked. Maybe one can substitute something else for that. Maybe one can substitute truth to be seen within. That works, but I want to be liked doesn't. So that's an insidious one, a very subtle one. And most people know that it's dukkha, but they don't know a way out. Because I certainly don't want to be disliked, but that's not the opposite of wanting to be liked. The opposite of that is truth within. So when one can see that, there are so many wants in everybody's life. And we can see that each one creates dukkha. And when we can see the sum total of that dukkha, then we know what the Buddha is talking about. The sum total of it. Now this one, I want to be like this, of course, naturally, it's based on ego. All of it is based on our self-delusion. Maybe the word ego isn't that um, fitting at the moment. It's a self-delusion. Because the word ego in our language seems to denote that we're egocentric. That isn't meant to talk. Everybody who has a self-delusion is egocentric, so that's taken for granted. But the self-delusion is what we're talking about. So if we could look at whatever arises in the light of impermanence, it comes and it goes, and in the light of dukkha. Maybe sometimes we don't see it. It doesn't matter. The trying is what matters. This is where the practice goes. As I've said before and will say again, particularly for those who weren't here in the last week, practice doesn't just mean meditation. Meditation is one part of it, a very essential part, obviously. But the rest, if that isn't practiced, meditation, first of all, doesn't work, and secondly, it doesn't bring any results. We have to practice not only the meditative path, but we have to practice also trying to see things as they really are. And then the third step, which means penetration, to abandon the wrong view. Now, this is, of course... An enormously big step. And it is something that <coughs> sometimes arises within. Where, for instance, one 
has had a knee pain and has put it down to the fact that the sitting position is very useless and uh, one could sit quite differently, why not take a chair, and uh, that uh, it's all due to that. And all of a sudden, the mind says, no, that's not it. There is dukkha and that's it. That's insight. So in other words, instead of trying to find some scapegoat for the dukkha, whoever that may be, maybe the sitting position, maybe the teacher, maybe another teacher, maybe the weather, it doesn't matter. We can always find a scapegoat. There's that much around. Seeing the bare arising, the bare essential. So when we abandon, abandon the wrong view of that there is something out there that's causing it, then we gain insight. So whatever it is that is within us, all of it bears investigation. I want to eat now. Investigate. Why? I want to get out and have a, have a run or something. I don't want to sit here. Why? <coughs> Investigate everything. What is it? And then when we see that whatever it may be, it all cre is created because out of a desire for something different than what we've got, then we'll know Dukkha. The minute we drop the desire for having it different from the way it is, we've dropped Dukkha. If you'd like to drop your Dukkha, drop everything that you want different from the way it is. Simple, isn't it? <laughs> so this uh, word that the Buddha is using, penetration, means that we investigate in three parts. What's the cause, right? Why does it come about? Is it, then the next part, is it dukkha, is it impermanence? And the next part, can I abandon the view that I have on it? Can I see the bare essential arising? Now, this is particularly useful in a meditation course because there's quiet, there's silence, and there is, hopefully, also enough concentration to keep the mind on an even keel so that it doesn't get too upset about external matters and not too, uh, too worried about lack of sensual pleasures so that that calmness that has arisen in the mind gives way to the insight. This whole sutta is about insight until the very last moment. The very last moment he talks about the pathway of the jhanas. But since I have already explained those in the seven-day course and also in the last course, it isn't such an urgency to get to that. Anyone who needs the explanations gets them anyway in the interviews. Now there is another thing which is important to know. I mentioned already yesterday that conditionality, conditions, are specific. Like birth always generates death. So there, there's an indispensable dependency from 
the effect to the cause, from the cause to the effect. And the conditions that are there are the origin, so to say, the source of what happens. And they are the nourishing factors. They are the foundation. They generate the effect and they keep it alive as long as the condition is alive. As long as the birth is still there, as long as there's life, death can always come. Once it has happened, it's finished. So the condition is that which brings all these things about. So it generates the, the effect and then keeps it going until the condition stops. But there is, luckily, a great exception to that. Not all conditions have indispensable effects. Because if that were so, there would be no way to be liberated. There would be no way to attain Nibbana. If all conditions on that circular progression that I told you about last night and which you might have remembered to look at on that picture, if there were constant necessity for the effect to arise, then there would be no way out. So there are exceptions, luckily. Now, birth is not an exception. Birth generates death. But the doorway out of the circular progression, and we'll come back to it when we get to that point, is from feeling to craving. That's a very important point. Every time we have a good feeling, a pleasant one, and we want to keep it or regenerate it, we've already passed into craving, which follows with clinging, which goes to becoming, which goes to the next birth and again to death. This is our point of departure. Knowing that will help. Not to do it takes a lot of practice. But knowing it is the first step. Because the same, in the, by the same token, when the feeling is unpleasant, such as pain, and I've described that several times, but I like to point to it again in this context because it fits perfectly in here. When the feeling is unpleasant, such as a pain in the sitting position, and the mind says, I want to get rid of that, I don't like it, we've passed the point of no departure. That's finished. We're already in the craving mode again. We don't like it. And the craving mode brings with it, with it the rebirth. But you don't have to think about rebirth as happening after death because that long, and nobody believes they're dying anyway. There's always somebody else that's dying. So that rebirth isn't interesting. That rebirth is the next moment when again an unpleasant feeling arises and again the craving arises or a pleasant feeling arises and the craving arises. I want to have it, I want to get it, I want to keep it. That's the rebirth. We are reborn from an absolute standpoint every millisecond. But of course we don't notice that. I mean it looks very uh, sort of uh, static, doesn't it? 
I mean, we were here yesterday, we're here today, we're going to be here tomorrow, so where's this rebirth? But I have already explained to you about rebirth every morning, which is much easier to um, relate to, much easier to understand and also to use. But as an absolute, we are reborn every moment, because every moment, new thought, new feeling, cells deteriorating and coming back together again, there's something happening every single moment. And there's a totally different person every moment. Now, you might have, for instance, you might have a dreadful headache and feel awful, and the world is just not worth anything. And uh, it's, uh, you just as soon, uh, you know, sleep for the rest of your life and never wake up again or something like that. And then it's gone. And, oh, it's very beautiful view out there, and everybody's very nice. It's a very nice place to be. And it may have been just one minute in between. So we are constantly different. And even if it isn't that dramatic, which is a dramatic change, there is this constant change within us. But we don't have to, we can't actually relate to that. But what we can relate to is the fact that at the point where the feeling arises, there is the doorway out of constant dukkha. Because whenever we want to keep the pleasant and want it again, there's wanting which creates dukkha, second noble truth. And whenever there's unpleasantness and we don't like it and want to get rid of it, <coughs> there's lots of dukkha. Whatever we don't want or do want, that's a craving. First noble truth, noble truth of dukkha. Second noble truth, the noble truth of the cause for dukkha. Cause for dukkha, craving, no other. I've already told you, those of you who were here before, try it out. If there's anything in your life that you don't like, that you'd rather have different, that's creating either a problem or a niggling feeling or anything that isn't peaceful and joyous, if there's anything in your life at all, may it be from the way, from the past, may it be at the present, whatever it is, or worries about the future. Drop it for one moment. You're welcome to pick it up again the next moment. But drop it for one moment and see the dukkha disappearing. It just is. That's it. Finished. And then, of course, the mind says, yes, but. And then you pick the whole thing up again and you've got the same dukkha you've always had. But at least that one moment you could prove the Buddha's enlightenment statement of the first and second noble truths in yourself. If there's no craving for things to be different, if there's nothing that you want, there's no dukkha. Wishlessness is dukkhalessness. So what we're looking at is that there, e there are causes which do not have to generate effect but they mostly do, because that's the way we are constituted. This is human nature, and human nature is not satisfactory. I dare say you might have noticed that already. Uh, maybe you haven't, so you can try it out and see. Transcending human nature, that is what the Buddha teaches us. Now, of course, we transcend in an elevated consciousness through 
other states of meditation experience, but they too are impermanent. And that's why insight is essential. And insight cannot be generated in, an, in a mind which does not have any karma tranquility. So, again, the uh, instruction. First, get the mind calm and tranquil, and then look at these things that I've been talking about, I've been explaining. Another thing which needs to be said about this, um, uh, dependerizing, as I gave you the 12 factors yesterday, it appears to be linear. There seems to be one after the other, and that is a teaching device. It's the only way one can remember it, and it's the only way one can actually look at it, because we can't remember that whole rigmarole that goes on within us. But in actual fact, there are effects which are removed from the immediate cause and have a cause which came much earlier. Like, for instance, when the feeling has been a pleasant one and the craving arises, that, of course, is also related to the mental formation. I like it, I want it. Now, the mental formation came much earlier in this uh, circular progression which I explained, but it certainly has a bearing on this craving. So we can't look at it as a step-by-step thing only, but for teaching and for investigation, it's extremely useful. There are others, for instance, that other effects that share the same um, causes and that because they share them, we can say that they sort of seem to work together, (coughs) but we cannot explain them like that. We have to explain them one after the other. And again, if we look, for instance, at our mental formations, which are the karma formations, which is said to generate the rebirth consciousness. Well, it generates more than just the rebirth consciousness. In this life, the mental formations also generate all our reactions. And the mental formations generate also the explanation of the sense contact. So as it goes from ignorance to mental formation to rebirth consciousness to mentality and materiality, then to the six sense spaces, Obviously, the mental formation is in within those six spaces also embedded in that. So it isn't as one by one as it is taught, but it's the only way to teach it. There's no way we can put the whole thing together and say, well, this works this way and this works that way. And besides, some of it we can notice. But when we know the progression and recognize how that happens within us, it's a great help. And you know why? Because, again, it takes away that feeling of this is me. It shows quite clearly that there is an objective happening. It's just a happening which doesn't single out any person. Everybody's got it happening. It happens to everyone, and it keeps going like that over and over again. 
So this is another reason for giving this circular progression to see for oneself that everybody has the exact same things happening and that they are not personal, but strictly impersonal. The more we get into this particular description of the um, dependerizing, the more it should help to realize the impersonality of it all. And that's, of course, the goal of the teaching. Because only, dukkha can only disappear if the one who's having the dukkha has disappeared, which does not mean death. It's just that little boy or little girl sitting inside, having all these problems, all these wishes, all these wonderful ideas, all these great capacities or incapacities. The dukkha disappears not because the world changes, but because one's inner being and inner feeling changes. Now, the actual explanation of the, this progression of dependerizing starts from here. And the Buddha says, Ananda, if one is asked, are aging and death due to a specific condition, one should say they are. If one is asked, through what condition is there aging and death, one should say, with birth as condition, there is aging and death. Now, you can see that the Buddha is starting at the other end. He's starting at death and going backward. Well, he will eventually also go forward again. Uh, most of the time he does that, goes both ways. But here he starts backward. Now, the goal of the teaching, the goal of that which the Buddha has been teaching is the cessation of suffering. So we are more inclined to look for cessation. So instead of saying, this brings that, he says the opposite. He says, if that ceases, then that also ceases. For sorrow. And there's no logical reason for any of that. The only reason is that with the birth of a person, we get something. And with the death of a person, we lose something. So we want to keep and get and not give away. But otherwise, there's no logical reason for it at all, because birth and death belong together. <coughs> so if Buddha says, if one is asked whether there's a specific condition for aging and death, well, obviously, it has to be birth. That is the only thing. Now, the Buddha talks about the fact that there are particularly three kinds of birth. And the only one we know at the moment is what is called the karma loka. Now, karma, K-A-M-A, means sensual desire. And that's the one we're in. And every human being that hasn't practiced to let go of that is vitally involved with sensual desire. And because of that, the mind is not at peace. 
because again the word desire means wanting and again we have the first and second noble truths that when there is wanting there is dukkha now dukkha need not be tragedy or anything like that dukkha is that inner dissatisfaction or an feeling that of agitation or not being totally fulfilled and because of the fact that we have sensual desire and in this realm this is its mode of living there cannot be total fulfillment unless we let go which is the key word for the spiritual path letting go over and over again You see, if you want to meditate, you've got to let go. What do we have to let go of? Thinking primarily. How does one let go of thinking? In order not to think, one has to let go of the ego support system. Only when we think do we know I'm here. When we stop thinking, nobody tells us I'm here. We've got to pass that threshold one day if our mind is still rummaging around in everywhere that is why the difficulty is of the spiritual path of the meditation the letting go we are geared and we are also educated to amass to get more and more maybe we've already given up the idea that three cars are better than two but we still haven't given up the idea that we need to have a confirmation that I am. And that confirmation can only happen when the mind is thinking. And that confirmation of I am is most easily confirmed with sensual gratification. And when sensual gratification is practiced, then it becomes more and more because it becomes a habit. And this is what the world is into. It's a habit. And because we see it as a habit and because it's everywhere, we don't even notice it much unless we happen to want something which is out of our reach. And then, of course, things break down a bit but usually we don't notice it at all that's the way we live in a situation such as this in a course where everything is nice and quiet and where one has plenty of time please investigate the desire for sensual gratification it doesn't mean that you'll be able to give it up just like that it doesn't mean that you're blameworthy nothing of the kind All it means is that you're a human being, and since you knew that anyway, that's not new. But what it means is that you have become a human being aware of the mode of living of an ordinary human being. Sensual desire, desire for sensual gratification, which also means I like to sit comfortably. Now, obviously, in meditation, it's much better if one sits comfortably, but It is that desire for it which makes things difficult. Now, the Kamaloka does not only uh, concern the human realm, 
it is actually everything that's below human realm and also extends into what are called the Deva realms, higher realms. But the um, desires are probably more subtle because there are far more subtle bodies. Now we've got this cross body, so we really have got something to contend with. The Buddha said, not that the body has cancer, but that the body is a cancer. And if you were to imagine for a moment that you could sit here meditating without a body, could you imagine how much easier that would be? Absolutely no disturbance from the body, just from the mind. Well, that's still enough disturbance, but at least it's probably put in half. So 50% is eliminated. And in the higher realms, which are reached through higher consciousness, the bodies become finer and finer and more and more subtle. And the first of the other realms is called the the Rupa realms. Now, in the Rupa realms, obviously the word Rupa actually means body, but it means the fine material realms. And they are reached through the fine material meditative absorptions, which are number one to four. And reached meaning that at the time that one is actually in one of those absorptions fully, the body is no longer a problem. So it is not only a rebirth possibility, which it is, it's an immediate rebirth possibility. Doing the fine material absorptions, first to fourth jhana, the body is no problem at the time when we meditate. It comes back as a problem, of course, the minute one is finished with the meditation, but at least one knows something different. And then the third kind of realm that the Buddha talks about are the Arupa realms, Arupa Loka. Loka means realm. It's the same word as location. So we are in the Kama Loka, then comes the Rupa Loka, and then comes the Arupa Loka. And that's the non-material realms, which to the non-material meditative absorptions. So in that, at that time, when those are reached, which are number five through eight, <coughs> The body has absolutely no bearing on the whole matter anymore. There is a mind expansion. And the Buddha talks about these realms as rebirth realms, where one can become reborn, which is not what he uh, advises as a goal, but there are possibilities. And there are, of course, our possibilities during meditation. And within those realms, then, in the Arupa, in the non-material realm, the sensual desire is not experienced because the mind has a totally different expansion. So the sensual desire only is experienced in the Kama Loka, not in the Rupa and in the Arupa Lokas. But we, as human beings, are beset by sensual desire. And it is very important as a part of our understanding of who we are to see that what we desire and why do we desire it 
investigate. It's recognition. There is no blame attached. There is nothing other than awareness. This awareness means we get to know ourselves. If we don't get to know ourselves, we're meditating in vain. If we don't know ourselves inside out, eventually we've not meditated properly. We've been sitting here thinking, which is another way of passing the time, but not a very useful one. And, of course, it happens to everyone, but it mustn't remain as a habit. So we have that in aging, death and birth. There's another aspect to it, which is the next... (coughs) I think I'll leave the next one for tomorrow. It's the next uh, step on this uh, progression, and it is very difficult to remember that many things. In fact, it will be difficult for you to even remember what I've said so far. But I would like to point out the most important practice aspects by repeating them now. The most important practice aspects is, or are, to see one's own dukkha and see that one can drop it if one doesn't want to change the way things are but accepts them just the way they are for one minute. If there's any dukkha at all, any disquiet, any dislike, any kind of feeling, I that should be different, this should be different, this should be better, it would be so much better if, certainly it would be so much better if, wouldn't it be so much better if there were never any wars, never any famine, if nobody was unhappy? Well, we don't live in a fairy tale. The fairy tales do try to portray that sometimes. Even they don't usually do that. So it would be so much better, certainly. But what's the use of saying it would be better if? That's how we create our dukkha. If there's anything we can change after having recognized it, let's change it. But thinking about it isn't going to change it. So the first thing is to recognize if there's any dukkha in the mind at all, it may be even very small, and then dropping the wish that it were different, but just accepting it, allowing it to be, because it also changes. Everything that is allowed to be will move in flux and flow. That's the first thing that one can practice. The second thing that one can practice is to investigate one's sensual desires. As they come up, during the day, as they come up at any time at all, for no reason at all. Why am I having that? What is it that's creating that within me? And also, investigating whatever comes up, whether it is essential desire or not, whether it is a dukkha that is arising because one wants something different, but whatever it is that is arising, investigating the cause for it. Why is it arising? Now, it may be something wonderful that's arising, maybe concentration. Investigate the cause. Why did I get concentrated? What did I let go of? Whatever it is that's arising, the cause for it, it's particulars. And then investigating it within the light of impermanence and dukkha. And then abandoning the view that it could be permanent, that there's anything that could be permanent 
and anything that could not be Dukkha. It's a tall order and it's worth a try. But the try is the practice. Now this has to be done repeatedly. This is a kind of investigation which brings insight and needs repeated and diligent attention. Because as long as we keep the views that we have, we haven't understood what the Buddha taught. And if we haven't understood what the Buddha taught, then the meditation also will not really have the effect that it could have. So repeated investigation into the causes and particulars of whatever is arising, to look at all that in the light of dukkha and impermanence, and then abandoning the view that there are things that can be made permanent and that there is actually sukha. The Buddha said that we, as human beings, always think of all that is impermanent as permanent and all that is dukkha as sukha and all that is sukha as dukkha. Sukha is the opposite. So those are practice points. At this time, if you like to ask some questions, What is Buddha's view on rebirth? On rebirth? Yes, uh, reincarnation all the way down. <coughs> There's no such word as reincarnation. It's always rebirth. Reincarnation is, is doesn't is not something that is in the in the thought process. What do you mean? What is the Buddhist view? I think I've talked about it already. What do you mean by that? Can you uh, elicit it, your question? The body goes back to dust, yes. And then? The mind carries on, the mind doesn't carry on, the energy carries on, the energy doesn't carry on. What energy? Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I've already explained it. The, The rebirth consciousness comes out of the fact that we want to be. And that rebirth consciousness enters the womb at the time of conception. But you don't know who you were last time, neither will you know who you're going to be next time. It's not you. It's a totally impersonal process. And because of that, it isn't really a practice. The practice is seeing your rebirth every moment, or at least every morning. Maybe you weren't here when I was explaining that about rebirth every morning. (coughs) On one of the tapes of the last seven days. Yes. Is it possible to have a relationship like marriage without wanting or craving? Uh, uh, marriage, yes. Sexual relations, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sexual, sexual relation is always connected uh, to craving, but marriage doesn't have to be, no. Marriage can be a partnership. So then you only have sexual relationships or <coughs> procreation? Well, if you have them at all. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the, Buddha, the Buddha did not say that uh, sexual relations within marriage is anything wrong with them. 
But uh, and he didn't say that you only have them for procreation. But in those days, there was little else to do, because they didn't know they didn't know much about um, uh, prevention. So um, it would have been that anyway, most of the time. But there's nothing wrong with lay people having sexual relations, but uh, as long as it's within the family. But it's always connected to craving. Certainly, has to be. That's why there's attachment. So that kind of difficulty is always there. And if one sees it like that, one can at least have a a certain um, understanding of it, which is a big help. Anything else? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say that we have the desire to get rid of desires. And there certainly is dukkha in that because you sit there and you have a meditation and you think, oh, this was very bad, I'll never get there. Well, dukkha, <laughs> you know, dukkha. And, you know, Ananda was having that problem. So uh, uh, it would be great if we could let that desire go. But on the other hand, it is also a great spur to have that real feeling that um, this is what I really want to do. But during meditation, one needs to let go of it. If it happens during meditation, meditation can't function. So, But in one's daily life, as a priority, yes, it's an important thing to have. It's wholesome, and it will eventually bring the removal of all desires at arahantship. Because until then, there will be dukkha. Anything else? Yes. When I undo the zipper and take out the bits and lay them out, uh, I'm pretty convinced that that's not me. But I still am uh, of the feeling that the processes of my mind (coughs) are me. Okay. And I can't seem to get past that. Right. Okay. I have already mentioned that part of it too, but I will mention it now in answer to your question. Um, we'll probably get back to it again as we go along in this sutta. The mind is also consisting of different parts. Now, what you have to do is also dissect the mind into its parts. And the mind consists of four parts. I mean, in the Abhidhamma, we've got 89 parts, but that's too complicated. So we'll stick to four parts because they're easily discernible. They are something that is practicable. The first thing that happens is a sense contact. The second thing that happens is a feeling. The third thing that happens is a perception, which is the labeling, giving it a name. And the fourth thing that happens is the reaction, which is the mental formation. Now, if you practice that, and I mentioned that uh, last week, if you practice that, for instance, when you are outside and you see something, it needs a great deal of... um, slowing down because the reaction is so fast that we do not become aware of the feeling. We may become aware of the labeling, but even that usually passes us by. Let's say we see a beautiful flower, right? 
and immediately the mind says, gee, that's nice. I wonder if they have to water that a lot. Well, they're so dry here, they shouldn't water so and so on and so on. You know, a whole storyline. Okay, but what has actually happened, and you need to go back. It's, it's useful to go back, start again, look at the flower again, and try to become aware of that there's a pleasant feeling arising. And then that the mind says, beautiful flower. That's a labeling. And then the reaction, whichever way that might go, what, it's, what is its name? I'd like to grow it too, or whatever the reaction to that is. So it is very important to dissect into those four parts. And then, and that is all explained in this sutta later, to recognize whether any of those parts can really be me. So can I only be the labeling? Or can I be the reaction? Or do I have to be all four? But sometimes one of the four isn't there. And most of the time I don't even know about most of those four. I only know the one. So how come I don't know that this is me? So this is another inquiry which is a little more difficult. It's very obvious that one isn't those bits and pieces. That's very obvious. But that is a little more difficult. Because what most people come up with at the end is, well, I'm the one who's observing all that. But the observing is also a mental formation. And sometimes one isn't observing when we're sleeping or when we're totally caught up in something else. Well, where has the me gone? Is it taking a holiday then? And it comes back all of a sudden. So this is another way of inquiry. And there are other ways of inquiry. Uh, on the rare occasions when, when that process happens slow enough for me to see the steps and to break it down, I can see also that I'm not any one of those steps. But I still hold a view that I am the process, all of them working together. Sure. And that seems to be where I'm stuck. Right. Well, that's where, well, even getting stuck there is already a step ahead, you know. Um, of course, when you put all these bits and pieces in and close the zipper up again and look at the mirror again, well, you think again you're me, right? I mean, who's sitting there? It must be you. I mean, it's not somebody else, is it? So it takes more than that. But these are the beginning steps, and they have to be taken. And as we take those beginning steps, we get an inkling of where we're going. We have a direction. It's not all um, uh, running around in the dark. This is a direction. And then as the meditation becomes solidified, it becomes really strong, then the concentration can be so strong that we can go another step. But these are the beginning steps and very important to do with repeated inquiry. So you can do it again and look at it and again, whatever arises, feeling, reaction, uh, sensation, inquire into that, see its cause and then see whether it applies to impermanence and dukkha. That's another inquiry. There are many ways the Buddha showed us how to inquire into this. Anything else? Yes. It seems that uh, the process of meditation and meditating so concentratedly is pushing everything I used to think about into my I'm dreaming constantly. At night, I hope. <laughs> well, actually, a bit during the change role, I do take 
Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Not while you're meditating, you're not dreaming. No, no, no. Okay. No, no, I, I rest. Okay. It's, okay. It's yeah, this is a very common um, happening that um, meditators, particularly if they haven't been to many uh, intensive retreats yet, that because the mind is enjoined to keep quiet and meditate, it brings up those things in the dreams. And there's a lot of dreams, but that also um, cleans itself out and uh, becomes less and less. It's, it's um, very common. I hope they're pleasant dreams. So, so. <laughs> so go to bed at night with a loving-kindness meditation. Lie down flat on your bed and do a loving-kindness meditation for as short or as long as you need uh, until you fall asleep. And do it for yourself and the people you know. And that should help to have pleasant dreams. Yes. I kind of want to add to your statement about marriage. Um, can you give um, some kind of practical advice on personal love in order to... Yes, uh, I think it's tip number four. <laughs> it's called unconditional love. <laughs> okay? So uh, I don't know how you're going with lending out tapes. Are you going? <laughs> it's number five. Oh, it's number five. <laughs> it's called unconditional love. And uh, the personal love business, and at your age, that is an important point. I quite realize that. You know, when you're 70, it's not so important anymore. But I can remember being 22 or 23. Um, it's an important point, but it doesn't work, you know. And <laughs> so uh, on that tape, I've, I've given the alternatives, how to make it work on a different level. And there, I'll just give you a, 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 just a sentence on it. I mean, I can't, you know, go into the whole thing at this point. But on a, on a personal level, it's always connected to having a one, one person. And there's always fear attached to that because one can lose the person through uh, accidents or because the person changes his or her mind, which people are apt to do all the time. And uh, so it's never pure love. It's always fearful love. And because of that, it can never be really that kind of enjoyment that pure love can bring. So pure love is the kind of thing where there is a, no condition attached to it. And that doesn't have anything to do with a one-to-one -one relationship. It's just the loving heart, the quality of the heart to be developed. And this is what the Buddha called metta, unconditional love or loving kindness and it's the kind of meditation we do every evening in order to foster that and to get the mind directed there and even if you don't feel anything if you think it the mind and the heart eventually come together but if this is a point of importance do ask Anya to uh, lend you the tape on that it is an important point I don't think that it's in this sutta it's, uh, it's uh, mentioned so it is a, a point of being able to have that quality of the heart developed and cultivated where one is not dependent upon reciprocation. See, that dependency makes one de uh, dependent, and if one is dependent, one has no freedom. 
And please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Look into your heart and see the seed of enlightenment within. That, if cultivated, can bring total freedom, total liberation, which is in every human being's heart. See it as a golden nugget within your own heart. Appreciate your situation as a human being extend love towards yourself as the carrier of enlightenment. Feel the warmth of that love and the acceptance of the appreciation for yourself. See the seed of enlightenment in the heart of the person sitting nearest you. Extend your love and appreciation to that person, being the carrier of enlightenment. And now I see the seed of enlightenment as a golden nugget in the heart of everyone here. And love everyone as being a being on the way to enlightenment and appreciate everyone for their efforts in that direction. Now think of your parents as carrying the seed of enlightenment within their hearts. Fill them with your love 
embrace them with your appreciation. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you and recognize that golden nugget in their hearts as a seed of enlightenment. Love them and appreciate them, knowing that this is within them. Now think of all your friends and acquaintances all carrying that golden seed of enlightenment within their hearts. Give them your love and your appreciation knowing that they carry this greatest purity within them. Think of those people whom you meet in your everyday life, neighbors, people at work, in the streets, the shops, wherever you come across people, and see each one as a carrier of the seed of enlightenment, so that you can Extend your love and appreciation to each one of them without any hindrance. Fill them with love, embrace them with appreciation.
think of anyone whom you don't like or towards whom you're indifferent and recognize that golden seed of enlightenment in that person's heart too. Worthy of love, respect and appreciation. Give it to that person. And now think of people everywhere, wherever you can imagine people to be, all carrying that golden seed of enlightenment within them, whoever they are, wherever they are, they're all having that within them. Let your love and your appreciation flow out to them. recognizing the goodness in each person, being aware of that great potential that human beings have. Let your heart go out to as many people as you can imagine, wishing for them that they may actually attain enlightenment, that that seed may grow in their hearts. And put your attention back on yourself and feel the strength of that seed in your heart wanting to be cultivated, wanting to grow, wanting to bloom. Feel it as a strength within your heart. Fill yourself with love for that beauty within you and embrace yourself with appreciation for your efforts.
May all beings cultivate the seed of enlightenment within them. <laughs>